passion for God, and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. When the global market crashed in 2008, we saw a string of suicides from high-level executives who had lost millions and sometimes even billions of dollars in the financial crisis. One of them was named Barry Fox. And Barry, after he was passed up for a promotion, actually jumped from the 29th story of his office building. Another one was named David Kellerman, who was the CEO of Freddie Mac. And after his company lost millions of dollars, he hanged himself in response to this tragedy for him. In his third Super Bowl victory after four years, Tom Brady solidified himself as one of the greatest quarterbacks in NFL history. And when he was talking with the press about the accomplishment that he had just uh, achieved, he said, basically, I was left wanting more and wondering if this was all that there is to this life. In the same way, John McEnroe, the really fiery tennis player from the 1980s, and, and uh, you know, the really crazy hair with a headband, and people actually said I used to look like him. Couldn't play tennis like him, but I used to look like him. Uh, said that after he beat Bjorn Borg and ascended to the number one ranking in the world, the, the pinnacle of his career, he said he was left with a profound emptiness after he achieved what he had been longing for the, his entire life. Last December, we saw probably one of the greatest endings to a football game in at least the last decade, maybe even longer than that, when Auburn beat Alabama on the last play, when there was a a kick return from a field goal, 108 yards with no time left on the clock, and just incredible, and Auburn wins. And, And after that, one Alabama fan actually shot and killed her friend because she wasn't, quote, serious enough about Alabama football after the loss. What do all these have to do with each other? Well, the string that ties them together, the thread that binds them is the issue of idolatry. See, in the first couple scenarios, it was an issue of worshiping money. In the second one, with Tom Brady and with John McEnroe, it was a worship of success. And then this last one, it was really a worship of athletics, which is something that our entire culture, frankly, is is prone to do, is, is to worship sports. You see, God created us to worship. We are wired to worship him. It's a part of who we are. But when the fall happened, when Adam and Eve sinned, our desires and our, our, our focus on worshiping God got off-center. And we began to worship things that are not God, what we call today idolatry. See, when we think of idolatry, I think a lot of times we think of something that happened thousands of years ago when they, they sat before idols and these statues and bowed down to them and, and praised them and said that they were gods. But today, idolatry is just as common. It's even probably more prevalent for us today because it's more subtle. One theologian from the 1500s is named John Calvin, and he said that the heart of humans is like an idol factory. We just continually churn out idols, create idols, and worship anything other than God. You see, God created us to worship him, but somewhere along the way, our desires got offset and focused on other things, and this is the problem of idolatry, worshiping something besides God. 
This morning we are going to be in the book of Judges. We're just going to spend one week in the book of Judges in anticipation of our series, or beginning our series next Sunday. And I'm, I love the book of Judges. It's probably my favorite book in the entire Bible uh, because it's so relevant to us. You see, the book of Judges contains story after story after story of basically the wickedness of humanity. And you see the people of God, the the Israelites, they start worshiping God and they see this downward spiral until they eventually become pagan, just like the nations that are surrounding them. And I don't want to draw too many uh, comparisons and parallels between ancient Israel and the United States today, but I think there is one that we can draw safely, and that is that we are in a pretty similar context to the context of the ancient Israel uh, that they faced back in the day in the book of Judges. You see, just like Israel, we're facing a, uh, a society that is becoming increasingly pagan. It is becoming increasingly non-focused on God's word. And we see that God's word is becoming uh, less known, less important to people's lives. And it's in the midst of this that the book of Judges shares some good hope for us. Because the book of Judges tells us story after story after story. First, of the wickedness of humanity. But second, how we can seek God in the midst of that wickedness. It also tells us how deeply we need a Savior from our sins. You see, you're never going to read the book of Judges and come away from it saying, Hey, we're pretty good. We can do this on ourselves. You're going to come away with a great need for a savior. In fact, sometimes I call the, the book of Judges the I need a shower book because after some of the stories that you read in the book of Judges that you just feel so dirty from what is happening and there's no good guy in the story and you just want to go take a shower afterwards. It's because of the wickedness of humanity and one of those primary wickedness things that we see in this book is the issue of idolatry. This morning we're going to be looking at the story of Gideon and his calling. How many of us know the story of Gideon? Okay, yeah, so Gideon, uh, just a Sunday school reminder, Gideon was chosen by God to save the people of Israel from the Midianites. The Midianites had uh, over 100,000 people at their disposal, and they were oppressing the Israelite people. And God chose Gideon and miraculously saves Israel with only 300 men. Incredible story. But that's not what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at Gideon's calling. And I love the story of Gideon's calling because it's so encouraging for us. See, what we're going to see is that Gideon was a very flawed dude. Gideon was insecure. Gideon was faithless. Gideon was focused on himself. And yet God used him anyway. In fact, in the midst of all that, Gideon wasn't just faithless and and focused on himself. Gideon was an idolater. He worshipped other gods and not God himself. And that is good news for us this morning, because in the midst of our flaws, in the midst of our failures, God wants to use us anyway as well. And God wants to work in us to help us rid ourselves of our idolatry, to rid ourselves of the chains of slavery that we have to the things around us. So we're going to be in Judges chapter 6 and looking at the story of Gideon and his calling. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open to that. If not, it's going to be up here on the, uh, on the screen. So please follow along with me, starting in Judges 6 verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years, and the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains, and the caves and the strongholds. 
For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste to the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Right here at the very beginning, the author of Judges gives us a little bit of backstory of what's going on before we're introduced to Gideon. And, and things are pretty bleak in Israel at this time. Things aren't going well. They've experienced oppression from the people of Midian for seven years. During those seven years, they're suffering a lot of, of persecution, of, of terror, wondering whether they are going to eat another meal because they're running out of food because all of it's been stolen. The people of Midian would come from the east and they would come into the middle of Israel. And from there, they would spread out and basically take all of the food that they could find. And they would do this right before the harvest. See, it makes sense for them to do this before the harvest because all the food's still out in the field. It's a lot easier to steal the food that is out in the field rather than from a grain bin where it's easy to defend. In fact, I don't recommend you do this, but if you are ever interested in trying to steal a lot of food from a country, do it right before the harvest. Follow the same plan that the Midianites did because all of the food is still out in the fields. You can just imagine the terror on the face of the Israelites because with each inch that their wheat grew, they knew that they were one day closer to the people of Midian coming and stealing everything and terrorizing them and making them flee for their lives in terror. See, the people of Israel hadn't been established in the land of Palestine for that long. They were new to the land, and so they didn't have any fortified cities to defend themselves. And so instead of trying to defend themselves, they, they adapted a new tactic, and that was called run and hide, try to save your lives. It wasn't, it wasn't a military tactic, it was a survival tactic. Just try to make it out alive, and let's see if we can make it to the next year. See, each year they knew that the Midianites were coming, but each year they still held out a hope that maybe this year would be different. Maybe this year the Midianites would skip their village. The author tells us that they went as far as Gaza when they came into the land of, of Israel. And Gaza, if you've been following the news recently at all, Gaza is on the west side of Israel. Uh, it was on the west side of Israel at that time as well. So they came from the east and they made it all the way to the west. Basically, every single person in Israel was facing terror and oppression from the people of Midian during this time. But before we get really concerned and feeling sorry for the people of Israel, it's important for us to ask, why was this happening? Why were the people of Israel suffering and being oppressed by the Midianites? Well, the author of Judges tells us that in the first two verses when he says that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In other words, God was punishing them, trying to wake them up, trying to get them to repent and come back to him from the evil that they were doing. But what exactly does it mean to do evil in the sight of the Lord? Well, there's two things in the book of Judges that are doing evil in the sight of the Lord. First is moral evil. This is when they were, uh, the people of Israel during the time of the judges uh, would go and slaughter people for no good reason. In fact, one of the tribes almost disappears from the face of the earth because of no good reason. There was a lot of, of rape and sexual sin during this time. There was defrauding, there was sacrificing children during this time. So there's a lot of moral evil in God's eyes. But I think more importantly than that, there was spiritual evil that the people of Israel were committing. 
See, they were worshiping after other gods. They were, they were seeking other gods for their salvation and their, pro, uh, their provision and their safety rather than God himself. It's kind of sad that God had to resort to this extreme measure of, of submitting them to oppression from Midian in order to get their attention. I think it's even sadder that it takes seven years for it to work. People of Israel submit to oppression for seven years before they realize that God might be trying to tell them something in the midst of this. So they go through all this suffering. They go through all this hardship. And then they finally realize, you know what? Let's call out to God. Let's see if he can help us. He helped us in the past with the, during the time of Moses. He helped us in the past during the time of Joshua and, and Ehud and Deborah. Maybe he can come and save us again. Well, let's see how God responds starting in verse 7 here. This is verse 7 and God's response. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. It's not really what you want to hear from your final lifeline. It's not really what you want to hear from your last place that you resort to for hope. It's interesting because the Israelites, they seek out salvation and God sends them a prophet. And I love the words that the prophet uses because they're so indicting. See, what the prophet is saying is he's referring back to a time in Israel's past. In Joshua 24, we have this story of a covenant renewal ceremony. A covenant renewal ceremony is basically a time where the people of Israel stood before God and renewed their commitment to him. We've heard of people renewing their marriage vows. That's kind of what this was like. It was a renewing of their commitment to God. I just want to read this to you from Joshua chapter 24. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. In other words, what the prophet is doing and what God is doing through the prophet when he says this indictment of Israel in verses 7 through 10 is he's referring back to this covenant renewal ceremony and saying, Hey, Israel, remember what you said back then? Remember the commitment that you made to God, the promise that you made to God saying, we're going to serve only you. We're going to follow only you. Well, what happened to that? Why aren't you seeking after him anymore? Why are you going and following other gods? Don't come to me for salvation. Go to them for salvation because you've rejected me and so I'm going to reject you. Things were dark in the times of Israel during this time. Because they had rejected God, and for all intents and purposes, it looked like God had rejected them. And the same thing can really be said of us this morning. As we are looking at how to root out the idolatry of our own lives, we have to recognize that just like Israel, we are undeserving of our sin, or of our salvation. We are undeserving of the grace that God offers us. God doesn't owe us anything. We are not entitled to salvation. God offers us salvation, but it is completely undeserving like the people of Israel at this time. 
You'd think after the prophet showed up, there would be a little bit of confusion because why send a prophet? Why wouldn't God send salvation? But when you step back and look at it, it really makes sense. See, what the people of Israel needed, they needed to recognize that they weren't worthy of salvation. They needed to recognize their own sinfulness before God could save them. And so when you turn the page and look at verse 11 and continue the story, you probably would be expecting to see, and the oppression of the Midianites continued for another year, for an eighth year. Or at the very least, you would expect to see something along the lines of of the people of Israel saying, all right, God, you're right. You're right that we are undeserving of salvation. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to grin and bear it for the next year. We're going to try to prove ourselves worthy of your salvation. We're going to try to prove ourselves worthy of the grace that you offer us. And maybe next year we're going to ask again. And maybe next year we'll show that we're so serious about our relationship with you that you can come and save us. But that's not what happens in verse 11. Let's take a look at verse 11 here. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. I love verse 11. Because our God is a verse 11 God. Right after the prophet says you're completely unworthy of salvation, God shows up. God sends his presence to be with the people of Israel, and you get this glimmer of hope. And maybe this morning, some of us are thinking, you know, I'm a lot like the Israelites. I think that I have to prove to God that I am serious about this relationship with him. And then maybe after I show him how serious I am, after I work for it for a while, then God will give me grace. But that's not what happens. The angel of the Lord appears at Ophrah. Let's continue reading. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now we don't know a lot about Ophrah, and the fact that we don't know a lot should probably tell us something, and that is it wasn't that big of a deal. It was a backwater village. It was a dead end. It wasn't in the center of society. No one really knew anything about it. And so we can praise God for verse 11 that he shows up, but we can kind of get confused because why are you going to Ophrah to bring salvation through your people? You're not going to find anyone there. Salvation isn't going to start at Ophrah. The irony continues when we look at what Gideon is doing and what God calls Gideon. God calls Gideon a mighty man of valor. valor. And when we look at the rest of the story of Gideon's life, we can say, yeah, that makes sense. Because, yeah, Gideon's the guy who saved Israel with only 300 men. He, of course, is a mighty man of valor. But when we look at what Gideon is doing, he is far from a mighty man of valor at this point. See, when you would beat out wheat and get it ready for consumption, you would want to be in a flat, open area. You would want to be in a flat open area so that way you could take the wheat and you could throw it in the air. And when you throw it in the air, the shaft gets blown away and you're left with just the wheat. The worst place to beat out wheat is in a hole in the ground. Where's Gideon? He's in a wine press. He's in a hole in the ground. 
Gideon is far from a mighty man of valor because he is so scared of the Midianites that he is hiding in a hole, trying to get just a little bit of food to survive their attacks. So let's see how Gideon responds to God's statement that he is a mighty man of valor and that God is with him. Starting in verse 13. And Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. In response to God's statement that the Lord is with the people of Israel, Gideon just kind of scoffs and says, yeah, right. Just look at our lives right now. Just look at the situation that we find ourselves in. If God was with us, then we wouldn't be suffering at the hand of the Midianites. I remember the childhood stories. I remember how God led the people of Israel out of the, of the slavery in Egypt. I remember how he crossed the Red Sea. I remember how he led us through the wilderness and led us to victory in this promised land. If God was with us, then we wouldn't be suffering at the hands of the Midianites right now. We would be living peaceably. No, you got it wrong, man. The Lord is not with us. And in Gideon's statement, we see a little bit of just how dire and desperate the situation is in Israel. Because not only are they suffering at the hands of the Midianites, but they don't even recognize why they're suffering at the hands of the Midianites. They think that God has forsaken them, and they don't understand why God has forsaken them. So Gideon refers to the fact that the Lord is not with him and that God uh, doesn't have his presence with him. Says that God has rejected them. And let's see how God responds in verse 14 here. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. See, God ignores Gideon's childish rantings. He ignores the accusation that Gideon makes that the Lord is not with him and and just shows him patience and says again, God will be with you. The question that Gideon asks is, who am I to save Israel? And and God basically says, no, no, that's not the right question to be asking. And here we see one of Gideon's greatest flaws. He's too focused on himself that he can't look and see that God's presence is with him. See, when God refers to Gideon being a mighty man of valor, he's not referring to the strength that Gideon has himself. He's referring to his presence with Gideon. That's what we see in every single statement that God makes to Gideon. First, he says, the Lord is with you. And then after that, he says, but I will be with you in response to Gideon's objection. And then after that, in response to Gideon's next objection, he says, God will be with you. I am with you. Stop thinking about yourself and be focused on me. You're going to save Israel, but it's not going to be you. It's going to be me through you. It is going to be my power that saves Israel. It's going to be me that shines through you. And this morning, God calls each and every one of us to serve him in the same way as Gideon. 
and the callings that he has for us. For some of us, that calling may be to stay at home as a mother. For others of us, it might be as a doctor or as a businessman or a businesswoman. And God calls each and every one of us. And we might be saying, no, I'm not qualified. Pick someone else. I can't do this. Find someone else. And God says, no, 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 you're missing the point. It's not about you. It's about me in you. It's my power with you, my strength that goes with you. Don't say you're qualified because I will be with you. My presence is with you. At this point, it seems like it strikes a chord finally with Gideon. I don't know how it sinks into Gideon. Maybe he just realizes, oh, this might be the same God who was talking to Moses who who had a similar objection as I did uh, hundreds of years before. We don't know, but Gideon sees this little change in him. But at the same time, Gideon isn't completely convinced. And so Gideon says, God, basically prove it. Show that it's really you who's going to be with me. Give me a sign. And this shows us our second issue or the second flaw in Gideon's character is he doesn't believe God. Well, a few verses after this, we have the story of Gideon setting out a fleece before God. He sets out the fleece and says, God, if you're really calling me, then show me some dew on the fleece. And then, and then he says, now show me dew on the ground. And that's not a good thing. This isn't something that we should follow in our own lives. It's a lack of, uh, of belief in God, a lack of trust in God. Gideon refuses to believe God, and so he asks for God to give him a sign. And God graciously grants his request and says, okay, you can let go in verse 19. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and the unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that it was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizrites. So Gideon decides he's going to present a present to God. And what a present it was. This is a ton of food that Gideon decides to prepare for God as an offering, especially considering, remember, they don't have a lot of food in Israel at this time. So he presents to God an entire goat, an entire pot of broth, and then 36 pounds of unleavened cakes. That he presents to God. Now, that might not seem like it's all that significant, but it tells us a lot about Gideon. Because Gideon is preparing a feast for God, just like he would prepare a feast for a pagan God. He's not looking at the way that God commands offerings to be given to him in the Old Testament. And here we see that Gideon is truly worshiping other gods. And we'll get into that in a little bit, but this is just the first glimpse of that, that Gideon is worshiping after other gods, and and so he is trying to serve God in that same way. 
So God plays along with Gideon's little ruse here and says, all right, you're going to approach me like a pagan god. I'll let you start doing that. But he takes control of the scene when it's time for the offering to be accepted and wants to show Gideon that he is far from a pagan god, that he is anything but a pagan god, that he is much greater than any of the other gods that Gideon has ever encountered before in his life. And so he says, take that goat and put it on this rock, and, and pour the, the broth over it and over the unleavened cakes. And then when he touches the offering with his staff, it is consumed with fire. And right then and there, Gideon realizes who he is dealing with. This isn't just some pagan god. This is the God that he heard about when he was a young kid, about parting the Red Sea. This is the God he heard about that flooded the entire world during the time of Noah. This is the God who created the heavens and the earth. This is the God of Israel. And so Gideon has this terrifying fear in his eyes because he thinks he's going to die because he's seen God face to face. And God reassures him and says, don't worry, you're not going to die. I have accepted you before me. So Gideon does the only thing that he thinks he can do. He builds an altar there in response to what God has just done for him. Now, when we think of altars in the Bible, we typically think of an altar being a place where sacrifices are made. And that's what it's typically used for. It's a sacrifice uh, that, that is made to God. But there's another use of the word altar. And we see that is in Joshua chapter 22. In Joshua 22, there were a group of the tribes of Israel that they built this altar as a witness between them and their brothers, so they would always remember that God was at work between the two of them. And I think that that's what Gideon is doing here. He's building an altar of witness to remind him, to remind everyone in that town, to remind the people of Israel what God had just done for them. This is the place where God spared Gideon's life. This is where God proved that he truly was the Lord of peace. It was a reminder. It was a witness to everyone during that time. And that's good news for us this morning because just like Gideon, God calls us, despite our shortcomings, to use us in mighty ways for his kingdom. In spite of our shortcomings, God wants to use us in mighty ways for his kingdom. Just like Gideon, we are idolaters. Just like Gideon, we are unworthy but just like Gideon, God wants to use us for his kingdom. That's truly an amazing statement right there. But of course, before God can use Midian to save the people of Israel, he has to save Gideon from his idolatry and his, his enslavement to other gods. And that's what we see in this final section here. So uh, please follow along with me, starting in verse 25. That night, the Lord said to him, being Gideon, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with the stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him, but because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it. By night. Right here, we see that there is an issue that Gideon has to address, that God has to address in Gideon before he can faithfully serve him to save the people of Israel. 
You see, while Israel is calling out to the true God, to the God of the whole universe, at the same time, they are worshiping Baal. Now, Baal was traditionally known as the storm god. He was the god who controlled the storms. He controlled the, way, the, uh, the waters and the rain. And so Gideon and his family, somewhere along the line, began worshiping Baal as a way to receive security, as a way to provide food, to provide safety for them. In the book Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller, uh, he talks a lot about the idolatry in our own lives and the idolatry in our society. A really short book, really good book, encourage you to read it. But one of the things that he talks about in that book is uh, the difference between surface idols and between deep idols. Okay, so a surface idol is something that is easily seen, that, that is something that we worship. But the deep idol is the thing that causes us to worship that. So, for example, let's talk about this Alabama crazy woman uh, who shot her friend. Her surface idol was clearly Alabama football, okay? She worshiped Alabama football, but that wasn't the main problem. There was something, something deeper at work there. Maybe it was a, a sense of inclusion that she sought, where she felt like she was included every time Alabama won. Maybe it was a search for meaning, where every time Alabama won, she felt like she had meaning. I don't know exactly what it was, but I know that it wasn't just Crimson Tide football. See, there's nothing inherently wrong with Alabama football except for the fact that they play in the SEC and no one likes the SEC. There's something deeper at work there. There's an issue that was deep. It was a deep idol. In the same way, as we look at Gideon's life, Baal was just the surface idol. It was the easy thing to identify. But the deep idol in his life was a search for safety and security. And so as he was searching for that, which those things are good things, by the way. Most of the time, idols are good things that become ultimate things. So as he was making these things the ultimate things in his life, he sought after Baal to provide for them because he saw them as the ultimate things in his life. Surprisingly, Gideon obeys God. He tears down the altar to Baal. He cuts down the Asherah pole. It's a sign of obedience. And he rips out this surface idol out of his life and says, all right, God, I'm going to serve you. It's interesting because uh, we see that Gideon is obedient here, but he's not very courageous. Uh, he does it at night because he's scared. That's all right. Uh, God, God's going to work with that. He's going to work with the fact that Gideon is not courageous, but at least he is obedient. That's the big thing in his, in his life that he is searching for. So let's see how uh, this story ends in verse 28. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this. Then the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood before him, will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbabel. That is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. 
See, the people of Israel get really freaked out when Gideon is obedient to God because they were worshiping, uh, worshiping Baal and seeing him as the only way that they could be saved from the pressure that, that Midian was putting on them. See, the people of Midian actually worship Baal themselves. And so if it worked for the Midianites, then the people of Israel thought, well, maybe it'll work for us too. And so let's worship him more and more and more. And then maybe the, the people of Midian won't, won't be oppressing us because the same God of them will be our God too and we'll be okay. And so when Gideon rips down this altar, the people of Israel are thinking that he just ripped down their only chance of salvation. As a way to try to make amends with Baal, they say, all right, let's kill Gideon. Let's offer him as a sacrifice to Baal for what he has done. But then Gideon's dad steps in. And we don't know if Gideon's dad was transformed just like Gideon or not. Uh, We don't know if he was just trying to save his son. But what he says makes a lot of sense and actually saves Gideon's life. He says, listen, if Baal is truly a god, he can defend himself. In fact, if you were to try to defend him right now, it would actually be offensive to him. Because you're saying that he can't defend himself. So, so let's just leave Gideon alone and let Baal deal with him. And so that's what the people of, of the town decide to do. They decide to curse Gideon and say, all right, from now on, you're going to be called Jerubbabel. Or let, we're going to just leave you to Baal and let him handle you. And there's a little bit of irony here at the, the very end. Because with every single breath that Gideon takes from this moment for the rest of his life, it's a testament to the fact that Baal can't save himself let alone save the people of Israel. Same is true for us. Our idols cannot save us. They can't even save themselves. That's what this third point is, as we try to identify our idols this morning. is just like Gideon, God calls us to root out the idols of our lives. Just like Gideon, God calls us to root out the idols of our lives. That's really what this entire passage is about. That as we serve the living God, we must rid our lives of all other gods. As we live for God himself, let's get rid of all the other idols. The things that distract us from him and focus fully on him. Of course, that's really easy to say, isn't it? I don't know what our idols are here. For some of us, it might be our family, especially our children. For others of us, it might be success at work. For others of us, it might be power over others. I don't know what your idols are. And and sometimes it can be difficult to identify those idols. But I just want to give us four suggestions on how to identify the idols in your lives. The first one is this. Follow your imagination. Follow your imagination. See, What do you think about when you daydream? When you have time and you let your thoughts wander, where do they wander to? Do they wander to visions of you on the lakes with a nice new boat? Do they wander to you being the expert in your field? Do they wander to your children being the top of their class? That might be your idol. Second, Follow your money. In the Gospels, Jesus tells us that where your heart will be, there your treasure will be also. But the same thing can be said about the reverse. Where your treasure is, is most likely where your heart is also. So look at your discretionary spending. If there's an inordinate amount 
in one area, that might be where your idol is. Follow your money. Third, identify your Savior. See, as Christians, each and every one of us would say that our Savior is Jesus, that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. But look at your day-to-day life. What are you really living for? What is it that you can't do without? What is your day-to-day functional Savior that you depend on each day? And fourth and finally, follow your emotions. Follow your emotions. See, oftentimes where our deepest, most uncontrollable emotions are, that's also where our idols can be found. If you are still raw from a past hurt from years ago, that might be where your idol is trying to redeem and atone for that mistake. If you're so angry over something that happened to you or you feel like God has done something to you in the past, that might be where your idol is. Follow your emotions and see where God would lead you. See, it takes a lot of work to identify our idols in our lives. But it takes a lot more work to identify the deep idols in our lives, the reasons why we are seeking after these surface idols and finding our enjoyment and our satisfaction in them. But it's crucial to our growth as God's children. See, for idols, they're a lot like weeds. If you don't rip them out by the root, they're going to grow back. In the same way, if you have this barren patch of dirt and you don't plant something in its place, Eventually, a weed's going to start growing there. That tells us how we can root these things out. It's not just about pulling them up by the roots. It's not just about identifying our deep idols and getting rid of them. It's about replacing them with Jesus himself. Maybe in your life, for example, you have a deep idol for a need for success. But if you don't replace that need for success with Jesus, and you just get rid of it, It'll eventually come back. And unfortunately, that's the sad situation that Gideon found himself in. If you look at the rest of Gideon's life, it's rather a disappointment. See, Gideon addressed the surface idol in his life, but he never addressed the deep idol, his need for safety and security and power. And so for the rest of his life, he's seeking after power. He's seeking after ways to make himself safe and secure, rather than trusting in God himself. And so I just encourage you this morning, don't be like Gideon. Don't just root out the surface idol, but root out the deep idols of your life and replace them with Jesus. If your deep idol is to be someone, if it's incessant desire to be someone, replace that with the fact that God has done enough in Jesus if your deep idol is a, an overwhelming sense of need for security, trust in God to provide and protect you according to his plan. And if you feel like you have some need to redeem yourself from some past sin or from some past hurt, trust in God to offer forgiveness and grace and healing. I mentioned earlier that Uh, John Calvin once said that our hearts are like idol factories that continue to seek after things other than God to worship. Idolatry is all around us. Idolatry is deep within us. It takes a lot of work to root it out 
to replace it with Jesus. But that is what God wants for us. That is what God calls us to do, to seek his face and to love him supremely. Let's pray. Father, we come before you humbly acknowledging that we oftentimes don't worship you, but we rather worship created things. Things that you have created for our good, but that we make ultimate things, and so we ask for forgiveness. And God, we ask that as we identify these idols, that you would help us to root them out of our lives, and what's more than that, to replace them with a greater love for you. God, give us grace as we do that. Let us not beat ourselves up, but recognize that verse 11 in this story comes before verses 24 through 32. That your love for us, the fact that you show up, happens before you call us to root those idols out of our lives. And God, that is good news. And let us rest in that. God, I pray for your presence to help us in the midst of all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.